Good morning. My name is uh, Keith Medina, and uh, I've been a member here at First Baptist Church for quite some time, and uh, this is my story. Um, growing up as a kid, I was raised, I would call occasional Catholic. Uh, every now and then we would go to church uh, every so often, and when we did, it would be a Catholic church. So uh, growing up, I really, I, I believed in God. I knew who, I knew God existed, but I really didn't know who he was. I didn't know who Jesus was. I heard the name, and I knew he was always on the cross, but I never knew what that meant. But as a kid, I had this really childlike faith. Like, I believe God could do anything. And so I never doubted God exists, but not knowing who Jesus was, uh, not knowing the true gospel, I grew up with this like theology of I have to be perfect in order to get into heaven. There's just no way I can become like be like stand before a perfect and holy God in my shame and my filth that I was in. And I knew even as a young at a young age, I was a sinful person. And I just felt like I had to be perfect to be in the presence of God. And that really messed with me. I, I just felt like there's no way I can do that. You know, there's no way I can stand before God and and be like, I'm sorry. You know, just like it's, it's just not going to work that way. I just felt like I was just I did. I never lost faith in God, but I lost hope. I lost hope and I accepted to me. There was there was only one fate for me. You know, we all know what that was. And so I, I embraced it. I accepted it. I mean, to the point to where at nights I would stay up. I, I couldn't sleep because I just thought of what was hell like? What was that like? What am I going to see when I go there? And it just terrified me. I was afraid to die for the majority of my whole life. I was terrified to die. And it kept me up at night. And so going through my teens, I just finally, once again, like I said, I just accepted it and I just embraced it and I said, you know what, there's nothing I can do. Like I said, I didn't lose faith in God, but I lost hope. So I just started living however I wanted to live. You know, I just accepted it and was just, I just grew in that sin, that sinful nature, got into drugs. Uh, and so anyway, uh, when I was 16, I met my wife and we started dating and she was not saved. She was not a Christian. And so we just lived however we wanted to. Well, fast forward to the time we were about 22, 23 years old. God started working on my wife. He started working on her heart and she started this pursuit of God. And she told me this and I want you all to hear this. She told me, she said, if you're not going to pursue God with me, then we don't need to be together. She gave me that that decision you know if we're if you're not going to pursue God with me we don't need to be together at this point we've been together for years now I never opposed God like I said I always believed in him so I was like you know fine yeah let's 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 see who God is you know so she she started on this pursuit of God and I just kind of sat in the background and just kind of watched her do whatever she wanted to do well she started volunteering at the food pantry and the director at that at that time kept nudging her you know you need to come come check out our church you know and so uh finally one day she said you know what let's go, we'll check it out 
So she told me, and I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. You know, at this point, the only church I've ever stepped foot in was a, a Catholic church. So we come, we sit in that back row. Uh, we're a back row Baptist. And, uh, <laughs> and so we sat back there, and keep in mind who I was, right, growing up. Jason was fairly new. Uh, he was probably about three months in. And as I sat back there, this is what he read. As for you... You were dead in your sins and transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires of our thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. To me, that just confirmed everything I ever thought of. Like, I knew I was good as dead, and I had no hope. So I had lost hope. So when I heard that, I was like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> you know, I see that. But then in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that uh, one second. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. When I heard that, my spirit just leaped with joy like I have hope again. You know, God can do something with me, you know, and so I... From that moment forward, I felt like spiritually I became alive and I just grabbed Jesus by the legs. And I was like, from this point forward, I am never letting go of you again. Like this was my hope. And from that point forward, God has really done a work in me. And I'm sure there's many of you that probably had those same fears. And the hope is there for you as well. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Keith, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us and uh, how God moves so powerfully in your life. That is good, good stuff, brother. Oh, man. Guys, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them up to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4. We're in the tail end of chapter 4. I'm going to start in around uh, verse 43. Uh, verse 43. Uh, the apostle John, who walked with Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, uh, wrote this gospel for a reason, right? He's presenting a case. And we find out the reason at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, John writes these words. He says, uh, I wrote these things down. Sissy, uh, John 20, there we go. Uh, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, we've kind of said the whole book of John needs to be interpreted through this lens that these are a series of witnesses, a series of testimonies to the identity of Christ. And so um, specifically, we're, we're studying kind of the texts that are unique to John, Jesus' encounters, these long discourses with people. Uh, this morning, we're going to switch that up a little bit. This discourse isn't quite as long. In fact, this is a miracle. Uh, in, instead, we're going to focus on a miracle that uh, Jesus performs. But there is a, a great interaction with a man that is, is pretty unknown. It's an unnamed official and, and what Jesus does for his son 
who, who, who is, who's dying. And so uh, we're going to look at this man, this unnamed official, and this moment of crisis that he finds himself in. And we're going to ask of God, Lord, what can I learn from this story? What can I learn from his story so that um, I too might be a testimony for Christ, right? So join me in a word of prayer if you don't mind. Father, thank you for loving us. Um, thank you for your word. We ask right now that you would um, grant us uh, just a moment, just a moment, just a, just a minute to catch a glimpse of your glory. Um, Holy Spirit, we, we recognize you're the teacher of our church, and so we ask that you would come and that you would teach us and you would guide us. We, we ask that you would lift up the name of Jesus. We know that uh, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. We, 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 we know um, what it means to, to have this blessed book. And so we pray now that you would teach us and guide us. We know that your scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you train us up in righteousness today? If there's any sin in our lives, would you rebuke us? Would you point it out to us gently, lovingly? And would you show us who Jesus calls us to be? In Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, so I'm in John chapter 4. We're just going to begin reading John chapter 4, starting in verse 43, and we'll, end, uh, we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, after two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he pleaded with him to come down and to heal his son since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. It says the man believed what Jesus said to him. And he departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. I just want to point out a couple lessons this morning. I think we can learn from this unnamed uh, official, okay? Just, just two. Just two. And here's, here's the first, all right? It's kind of a big deal. It's one of those things I, I pray that all Christians would understand. It's that Jesus is more than capable of handling our moments of crisis, all right? Jesus is more than capable at handling our moments of crisis. Now, we just kind of read this uh, official story, and I kind of want you to, to use your imagination with me. By the way, it's okay to do that when you study the Bible. It's okay to try to put yourself in the situation of the person, try to put skin on the story. So I just want you to imagine for a moment this official. I, you know, we don't know what he's an official of. We assume that he's an official of Herod's court. He, he, that means he, he's probably a, a Jewish man, although the text doesn't necessarily declare that. And so we can make a, a few kind of assumptions here and there. Those things don't matter so much, but what, what does matter is that his son is ill. 
His son has a fever and is, is at the point of death, is, is what the text is. And so you can just imagine what the doctors of that day must have been like. Now, I don't know who your doctor is in town. If you've got a good one, let me know. Uh, but, but you're right. I don't know what your doctor's like, but I want you to imagine the doctors of that day and the little that they knew about medicine and, and, and their limited knowledge of medicine and their limited uh, treatments and cures as, as a young boy is about to die, as the fever spikes, as, 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 as he's not eating, he's no longer drinking, and, and no doubt this official has called in every doctor he can find, and the doctors have basically said to him, sir, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more that we can do. And perhaps you've been in one of those moments when the doctor says, you might want to say your final goodbyes. I just want you to imagine that situation. I'm, I'm imagining that the man was somewhat overwhelmed by that news and therefore he needed a moment to gather himself and so he withdrew from that room where his son was lying there with that fever spiked. And so where he withdrew, we don't know. Perhaps just outside the room. Maybe he even went to the synagogue to pray. But somehow he, he got outside of that space into a space where he overheard other people talking and this was the news. He is back. Jesus is back, and he's in Cana. And he says, why, why is it a big deal? Well, well he's back because the, the, the first place uh, that he performs a miracle was in that very spot, was in Cana. Now, now in our text, we kind of skipped over that story. I want to go back and read it this morning with you because this is the very place that Jesus performs his first miracle. Now, I want you to understand that after this first miracle, though only the servants saw it, the news began to spread. And while John doesn't show us any more examples of, of Jesus' miracles until he gets to this one, he does say that Jesus has just come from Jerusalem where he's performed many signs and wonders, including, of course, healing people. And so let's go back to chapter 2 for a moment, if you'll turn there, and, and let's just read um, what happens at Cana at a wedding banquet, okay? It says, on the third day, uh, I'm... I'm Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with me, woman, or, or, or mom? What does that have to do with me? Uh, it, was, it doesn't sound, I know it sounds like awkward, like he's kind of rebuking his mother. It's not that kind of language in the original text. Jesus asked, my, my hour has not come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons of water. This is a lot of wine that's about to be made. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. And then after the people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. See, the last time Jesus was in Cana, he faced another crisis. 
Some of you may not think it's a crisis, right? You may say, Pastor, that's not really a crisis. Come on. Hey, here we've got a boy that's dying, and you're just at a party, and you ran out of wine. That's not a, well, listen, it's not a life or death situation, but certainly in culture, it would mean dishonor for evidently a family friend. It's big enough to Jesus' mother that she comes to him, right? And so here we have it. Since Jesus has evidently performed other signs. In fact, this is what John says in verse 45. This is what he said. He says, when uh, they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything that he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for he had also gone to the festival. So the news gets out that Jesus is back in the region. The official hears about it, and, and he runs to Jesus, and when he finds Jesus, he begins to plead with him. The word in, in Greek uh, means to beg, but it's in the imperfect tense, which means he kept begging. John records two instances that he says, come, right? Come, he, he begins to plead, please come with me. My son is dying. This is a moment of crisis. It's a moment of crisis. Warren Wiersbe says this man comes to Jesus with a crisis faith. I would define a crisis faith something like this. I don't know if you're real, God. You ever had one of those moments? I don't know if you're real, God, but if you are, I'm asking that you would save my child. And if you do, I will be yours for the rest of my life. See, it's one of those moments where you've lived your life apart from God, where maybe you don't fully know who he is, maybe you're not educated in his ways, but life has gotten so difficult that you come running and just begging and just asking God, if you will work here in this moment, I will do anything you ask. And that's the point that the man is at. And Jesus simply tells him this. Verse 50, I switch to see this man's begging, and look at what Jesus says to him, go. He just says, go. He, now he's begging, I need you to come with me. I need you to come to my house. I need you to lay your hands on my child. Whatever you did in Jerusalem, I need you to do for me. I need you to heal my child. I need you to come now before he dies. And Jesus says, just go, he's healed. Just go, he's healed. And, and this official says he, he believes. He believes. But you see this, he comes to God in a moment of crisis. And in the moment of crisis, he encounters the word of God. And the word of God makes him a promise. And in faith, he takes that promise and he believes it as a certainty. See, friends, that's the definition of faith, isn't it? Hebrews 11, you remember that? Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1 says this. Uh, I have it for you. It's coming. It's, it's, in, it's not in there? Surely I put it in there. It's way, yeah, yeah, you got it, you got it. So I, I'm just out of order, man. It's okay. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is, get this, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So this, this man comes to Jesus begging, saying, you've got to come with me. You've got to come with me. My son is sick. My son is dying. You need to come. You need to lay your hands on him. Jesus says to him, Go. He comes through in a moment of crisis. Jesus says, go, I've healed your son. And without seeing his son, without returning home, without, without getting a text message from his servant or, or Instagram showing, showing that, 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 that his son is healed and up and dancing and jumping around, he's, he believes and he, he goes. He goes from this crisis faith to this, this faith where he, he is certain of all that Jesus has done. 
Now, why does John include this story? That's a question I ask myself all week. Why does John include this story? I mean, certainly we remember why he wrote the book. The whole book is written so that, right, like, so that we will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So clearly it has to do with that. It's a testimony of the power of Jesus. Okay, that's important, right? But is this passage meant to be prescriptive? You know what prescriptive means, right? You go to the doctor and they write you a prescription. It means do this and it'll work. Does John include this to mean that this is how God works? And if, if we run to God in our moments of crisis, that he will always heal our, our sick and dying loved one? Is that why he includes that? I, no. That's not John's point. In fact, I believe that's why uh, he doesn't even intend for this miracle to stand alone. So what do you mean, Pastor? What do you mean he doesn't mean for it to stand alone? Well, check this out at, at, at the beginning. And, and let's go back to that text in chapter 4. Chapter 4, starting in verse... 43, after two days he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified as a prophet that, uh, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything that he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. Then he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. Now, now, many miracles have happened between here. John does not record any of the other miracles. He doesn't record what Jesus does in Jerusalem. He records the first miracle, which happened where? In Cana of Galilee, where he did what? He turned the water into wine. So the next miracle that he is going to talk about is where? In Cana of Galilee. And he makes a point when he introduces the fact that Jesus has come back to Cana to say this is the place that he had turned the water into wine. Now, now there are no miracles in between. What is John doing? I'm going to tell you what I believe he's doing. It's called line of sight, right? Line of sight. Chris came out to me with my, my, my property uh, last, last week. We're getting ready to build a house and all these kind of things, and they're clearing. I said, Chris, I can't find my life. Fence post, it's important. We're going to put in a road. It's going to be on this side. And, and so he comes and looking, and he helped find the back post, and he goes, he needs to clear here because I can show you whether or not where you want to put this road will be on your property if I have a proper line of sight. So the Apostle John is establishing a clear line of sight. Because he wants you to see that these two stories have something to do with one another. Both of these stories are moments of crisis. One's life or death, the other's a situation of dishonor. And both of these stories, Jesus is hands off. Did you notice that? In, in, in neither story did he have to be present to, to heal. In both of these stories, he is hands off, right? And both of these uh, occur in, in Cana. And the point that John is making is this, ready? If it's a crisis to you, it matters to God. It could be a dying son. It could be a situation of dishonor for adults. You may think, oh, come on, that's not a crisis. You remember what it was like to be in middle school? You remember what it was like to be embarrassed publicly? Because it is a big deal. Because it can crush someone, right? And John's going, I just want you to see this, this, this God, this Jesus. Like no matter what life throws your way, no matter what the moment is that just seems too big for you, or like, like, like no matter what, you, you can turn to him. And, and I say that to you, Christians, because here's what I find. I think somehow in our culture, we've minimized God's bigness. In, in Christian culture, I mean, not, not, not in a worldly culture. 
and as a Christian culture, we no longer preach a God that's big enough for all things. We preach a God that's only big enough for cancer. Right? So, so run to God if somebody is dying for crying out loud. But if your dog is injured, like, don't talk to God about that, right? If, if you can't pay the light bill, like, don't, 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 don't go to God about that. Just figure it out. Right? Like, the point is, like, God is big enough for all of those things, Amen. right? And so I meet Christians who are like, well, yeah, I'm struggling, right? But I, 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 I just, there are other people that have much bigger things going on in their life than me. And we've got people in our church that right now, I mean, they're battling cancer and they might not win. And we're thinking, well, well, well God, like, that's I feel silly praying about my exam. I, I, I feel silly asking that, that God would, would heal me of, of bronchitis. I mean, I mean, that person's got cancer for crying out loud. And, and if that's you, if you've ever felt that way, I just want to ask this question. How small is your God? How small is your God that you think he's only able to heal a few things and he can't do all things? Do you follow me? And I believe clearly what John is doing by establishing a connection between these two miracles, these two moments of crisis, is he's saying it doesn't matter how big or how small in the world's view, or even in the Christian worldview, that your crisis is, but you can come to me with what you're struggling with. You can come to me with what you're struggling with. It's a big deal. Jesus is more than capable of handling our moments of crisis, okay? Second, second lesson I, I believe this text teaches us, and it's probably, it, well, it is, it's the biggest. Uh, if I were just going to preach one point, it'd be this. Uh, blessed are those who believe without seeing. When we get to the end of the gospel, really the end of pretty much any gospel, um, but you remember what happens after the resurrection eventually is Thomas is going to uh, say, I'm not going to believe unless I see him. And Jesus is going to appear and say, Thomas, I'm right here. Touch, touch here, touch here, right? And he's going to say something to Thomas. He said, uh, you know, you're blessed now that you've seen. But he said, how much more blessed are those that believe without seeing? Believe without. I'm just, I'm just tying things together for you so you kind of know where we're headed, right? So, so this lesson, blessed are those who believe without seeing. So if I were to preach this story, this would be my emphasis, and I, I want to show it to you. And so uh, let's walk through this, uh, starting with verse 45, okay? So verse 45, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because, get this, because they had what? Because they had seen everything that he did in Jerusalem. Okay, so John makes a point. So the Galileans welcomed him. Now, before this, he, he says a, a prophet is without honor in, in his hometown. Now, John says that because he's referring to the region of Galilee is, is kind of Jesus' hometown. Not that that's where he's born, but this is where he hangs out the majority of the time. So a lot of the religious people, though Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right? a lot of the religious people attach Galilee or the region of Galilee, Galileans with Jesus and his followers. All right, So they thought Jesus is an uneducated, blue-collar carpenter and so are all of his followers, just uneducated, ordinary fishermen, tax collectors. They'd be like, no, 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 that, that's not for us, okay? And, and, and so, so, so people, like, like, listen, there are people that will say, no, this has to do with he just came from Jerusalem. Um, I, I'm just telling you, I believe that this is a reference to the Galilee region because this is more where Jesus is identified with, not that he was identified with Jerusalem. And, and so it's interesting. So, so John says he comes to a place where, where people probably won't give him honor, but they suddenly give him honor. And why do they give him honor? Because they have seen everything he did in Jerusalem. They were at Jerusalem. So they, they've seen with, with their own eyes, right? And, and so uh, this man comes to him. His son is dying, and, and he begins to beg. And Christ responds, right, in verse 48. Uh, uh, Jesus says this first. He says, I, I say, again, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. 
He's talking about the seeing is believing thing. Right? That's our world's mantra, isn't it? Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. God's mantra is believing is seeing. It's the opposite. It's the upside down kingdom of God. So Jesus says, listen, you guys, you guys want to see, and then you say you'll believe. Now, he's not rebuking the man necessarily. Rather, he's rebuking the spirit of the people of the region of Galilee. Right? So gentle rebuke. And then we, we, so the man asks again, come with me, heal my son. And, and Jesus says, let's go. Your son's going to live. It says, the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. So, so the man is the opposite of the spirit of the people. The people have to see in order to believe, but this man believes without seeing, right? This man believes without seeing. And, and, and what is the result, right? What is the result? And some may say, well, I don't know. How, 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 how great was his faith? I'm going to tell you his faith wasn't perfect, right? And, and maybe you're here this morning, your faith isn't perfect either, right? And you say, well, how do you know his faith was perfect? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, he thought that Jesus had to lay his hands physically on his son. His faith was small, Right? Right? Lord, I believe, increase my belief. That's kind of, that's kind of the cry. So, so he believed like Jesus had to physically touch him. Like I have to be in the present. He's got to be there. He also believed that if his son died, if he didn't get Jesus there in time, there's no hope for his son. Jesus later is going to say, hey, I'm the resurrection and life, by the way. A couple days isn't going to hurt my friend Lazarus. So he had this limited understanding. But still, he believed with, without seeing. And again, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point. He hears the promise of God, comes birthed out of crisis, and when he hears the promise of God, he becomes confident. I'm going to steal all these from Warren, Weir, from Warren Wearsby, by the way. His alliteration was really good in this. So he says this. He says, this man comes to Jesus in a moment of crisis, but then he hears the promise of God and he believes it. And when you believe the promise of God, you become confident. So he believes that his son is going to be healed and, 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 and eventually he's going to go home. Now, you'll notice he doesn't head home till the next day. Talk about confidence. Now, it was probably by this time, Jesus speaks about one o'clock. He had some other orders to take care of. It was probably night. The trip wasn't that far, but you wouldn't travel at night. So the next day on his way back, he runs into his servants. His servants said, hey, guess what? Now your faith is confirmed. Right? Went from crisis to confidence. Now it's confirmed. Yeah, your son's okay. What time did that happen? He says, well, it happened about one o'clock, sir. About one o'clock, the fever left him. He realized that's the exact time Jesus said, your son will be healed. Okay, and then get this, his faith at that moment becomes contagious, right? It says he and his entire family believed. Do you see the blessing in that? Do you see the blessing that has come because this man believed without seeing? Do you see the blessing that comes? He finds himself in a situation where, where he comes face to face with the people that were, were with his son. And, 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 and face to face in that moment. And they're, he's like, what, what time did it happen? And they're like, one o'clock. He's like, oh my gosh, that is the exact time that, that Jesus said to me my son would live. And, and it says they all believe. The whole, the whole household put their faith in Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. Now you might mistake this passage and think the blessing was just the physical healing of his son. You might, you might mistake my words and think somehow I'm preaching a prosperity gospel. That if we believe in Jesus, we're going to receive everything, right? That, that our bank account's going to grow and all the people on our prayer list are going to get healed. And that's the way that it's going to work. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying though, right? There are certain blessings. Hey, okay, listen. It's important. There are certain blessings 
there are certain acts of God's grace that we will not receive without faith. There are certain acts of God's grace that we cannot receive without faith, okay? Without believing in the the, the goodness of God, even without seeing it. Jesus will say, you don't have because you don't ask. Do do you, you feel the gravity in that sentence? What Jesus is saying, my my father has blessings for you that he is withholding from you, and and he's good. This isn't a bad thing. God is good. My, My good father is withholding blessings from you because you're not even asking. You're not believing in God for those things. So what do those blessings look like? Well, I think the biggest two blessings, if I, if I were to point to a proof for, for, this, for this theory, right? What's the proof of this statement? What's the proof that, that there are certain blessings, uh, certain acts of God's grace that are reserved for those who believe? Well, I'd say the proof, the two biggest, would be the Holy Spirit and eternal life. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit, nor can you have eternal life without what? Without believing. Without faith. Now, sometimes um, this this blessing that I'm speaking of, uh, that that God withholds, sometimes that does have to do with healing. It does. Sometimes it involves your finances. But, you know, sometimes the blessing that that you'll receive, ready, is getting to know Christ in the midst of the suffering you face. And the Bible says that's a blessing too. Paul would declare, oh, to know Christ in the midst of his suffering. And maybe you're here this morning and that describes you. You've, you've encountered some suffering in your life. Right? Maybe you're going through it right now. I pray that your testimony, I, I don't know about you, but I've found in the worst places of my life, I've come to know Jesus the best. In the worst places of my life, I've come to know that he is with me, that his promise endures, that he, he does not leave me, that he is the lifter of my head, right? So I just want you to know that that is the promise of God right? Blessed are those that believe without seeing. So what do we do when we study this guy's life and all the lessons from it? I'll give you three things. I'll let you out of here, okay? First, I think our challenge is to keep begging, right? And keep begging. That word in the Greek, like I said, this was a continual action, This guy just kept begging for the life of his son. And I I don't know what you're facing. And again, maybe it's a loved one that's facing a cancer diagnosis. Maybe, 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 I I mean, literally, I I don't know. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe, maybe your crisis is, is, is in your mind much smaller and you're just facing embarrassment or disdain. I tell you, beg. God, please move. God, please act. God, please meet me here in this pit. God. That's how the psalmist would beg. Lord, be my refuge. Be my strong tower. My enemies are against me. Meet me in this moment, God. Just keep begging. Just keep begging, okay? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep asking. Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And so I've shared this analogy with you before, but it's the bottom of the ninth, and there's two outs, and you're up at the plate, and there's three balls and there's two strikes. It's a full count. What do you do? Do you stand there? You've got, the, you've got the winning run on third base. Do you stand there with the bat on your shoulder and take that strike right down the middle and walk off? Or do you swing for the fences? Keep swinging, all right? Keep begging. Two, take Jesus at his word. Blessed are those who see without uh, blessed are those who believe without seeing. 
Do you remember that old hymn? I'm sure you do. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Do you remember the, the first stanza of that? It says, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to what? Take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. That's what this man did. He took Jesus at his word. I'm telling you, you can do the same today. Every promise of God is for us, right? So when God says, listen, anyone who believes in me, I give the right to become children of God, right? Not, not born of earthly parents, but born of the spirit of God. That's for you. That's for you. If you believe that, then, then you will receive that today. That is for you. When, when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that promise is for you. You can believe that today. When, when, when he promises the blessing of the Holy Spirit, I'm coming to live inside of us. If you, if you believe in his name, that will happen for you today. When he promises rest to the weary and the overburdened and the heavy laden, that promise is for you. And you can receive that today. You just have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You have to come to him. And there you will find that rest, all right? Last thing. Wrap up. Be contagious. It's flu season. It's not hard to share this point. Our world's full of a bunch of contagious people people that are showing up even though they're feeling some body aches and some chills, people that ain't washing their hands like they should, that keep picking their nose and then shaking our hands. Come on. It's annoying, isn't it? You know what our world needs? They need some Christians that'll keep going and doing what God's told them to do. They need some Christians that'll keep testifying to how good God is, and even when life isn't, isn't perfect in, in, in the world's eyes. They need some Christians that are going to go out no matter what and speak of the goodness of God and tell their stories no matter what. Our world needs people that will be contagious. Not with the flu, but with the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Would you be that contagious Christian this week? Would you share your story with somebody? Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Um, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now um, for our people that are gathered here, for anyone that is struggling. I pray that you'd minister to their heart right now, that you'd let them know that your promises are still true, that they can believe in you, that they can turn to you. Father, there's somebody here that's in a moment of crisis in their life. And Lord, they, they, somebody hasn't even, they haven't even talked to you about it because they're afraid that it, it's not cancer. It's not the same as somebody else. But you know what? They still need to talk to you about it. God, would you give them the confidence today to run to you, to run to you. Jesus, I pray that they would meet you and find you in that moment. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.